Welcome to Affect Autism. This week we're doing a Zoom meeting. So this is a first for Affect Autism. And we have with us today Maud LaRue, occupational therapist, among many other certifications. We've had you here with us many times before, but this is an exciting podcast we're doing today because we're discussing your brand new assessment that you've developed at a total approach. And we're here to find out all about it. So welcome Maud. Thank you very much. I'm so glad to be back. And um, so, yeah, there we are. So what do you need to know? So let's, first of all, let me introduce the listeners to our general topic. Um, Affect Autism is a blog promoting an approach uh, for children with autism spectrum disorder. And it is DIR floor time that we are covering which is the Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based Model um, created by Dr. Stanley Greenspan and then developed over the years with Greenspan and his colleagues at ICDL. And, um, actually, I guess ICDL wasn't really part of the theory, but we now do the training at ICDL in DIR floor time to certify different professionals and uh, parent. there's parent courses there now too. and um, this is a model that is a developmental approach to autistic um, children and it's very respectful and playful it's all about play and enjoying what we're doing to help promote the social social and emotional growth in children and help them reach their potential whatever that may be in a non-invasive and very playful fun natural way is that fair to say Maud? <laughs> I think you've said it all. <laughs> okay, so part of the developmental individual differences relationship-based model, or here on in the DIR model, is um, about the functional emotional developmental capacities that children go through, typically before they reach kindergarten and get into school. But in children with autism, it tends to be a little bit skewed and they'll reach developmental milestones at different times and they'll often um, go through some of the developmental capacities with holes in the lower capacities so they aren't as robust um, and Maud has developed an assessment to help um, not only in the diagnosis of autism but really fitting it in with this DIR model and those six developmental capacities so do you want to say a little bit more or should we talk a little bit about what those six developmental capacities are? Or maybe we'll do that as, as you describe the, yeah. the assessment. Let, let's do that as we, we go through these pieces together. Because sure. um, I think what the important piece is, is the D is the developmental levels and the I is the individual differences that every individual profile brings to the table. And then the R is the relationship piece. So the relationship being the affect piece, that through affect we develop intrinsic motivation to learn, to grow, and uh, become motivated to be a part of whatever is around them. And, and, I think, and just to I think add to that, just to add mm -hmm. to that, this has been uh, validated in neuroscience research for yes. in the last thirty years, and this is the the key point that Dr. Greenspan really brought forward in a time where it was very uh, revolutionary to suggest that emotions played a role in intelligence and in learning, in adapting to our environment, in um, growth and development um, within relationships with caregivers. So this was a big, a big um, push forward and DIR model is based on affect and relationships. That's right. And the whole piece about affect and relationship has also been born through from lots of different independent research also in the mental health arena and how important that first relationship is and that attunement, that bonding that has to happen between two individuals and making that work and using that bonding for that being that catalyst for that forward development. So what, I'm an occupational therapist, so my drive is occupational function. So whatever that occupational function is in terms of whether it's leisure activity, whether it is school function and reading and math and writing, whether it is socialization, whether it is just simply relationship building. 
So whatever would, um, we were looking at whatever would impede those levels of function or occupational function is what I would be interested in to look at. So what we found is that there are multiple different evaluations out there um, that can be used to describe many different parts. The problem that we, we faced or we were facing was that those instruments are beautiful and wonderful, but they don't always give you the full total picture. Um, and there is a drive to look at behavior as a big uh, part of describing an interventional plan. Okay, we're going to decrease the hand flapping, so we're going to do this. We're going to decrease the fact that he, does, he doesn't make eye contact, right? And there's been a whole big push to make the behavior drive the intervention. That was not really something that Greenspan wanted. It's not something that drives our model. What drives our model is that we want to figure out Number one, we want to respect the individual and we want to say that whatever you bring to the table is going to have to be good enough for us. And if you need to hand flap, we're going to find out why and we'll rather chase the why than focus on the behavior. So what we needed to do is to see, okay, in order to chase the why, what instruments do we have? So there's a lot of individual instruments and there's also the whole capacities piece of Greenspan with the six um, FEDCs, as we call it, functional, emotional, developmental capacities. And those six developmental capacities has also been postulated in the FEAS, the functional emotional assessment scale that is also currently being revised. So there has been by Greenspan and a, a huge effort in getting some standardized data on this, through this FEAS model. But in this FEAS model, because it's also very research oriented, there were still pieces that, that we needed to add to the whole um, capacity arena and the individual differences arena that makes the full profile happen. So what we did is that we designed an evaluation through using um, regular questionnaires like the CARS to look at where on the scale of autism is this child currently at. We took those pieces and then we designed the whole evaluation according to the six levels. So you have level one, two, three, four, five, six, one being regulation, two being um, intimacy, joint attention, engagement, three being two-way communication, four being pretend play, um, complex problem solving, five being symbolic thinking, and then six being logical thinking. And in actual fact, you and I are doing level six and one through six all together right now. So, but in order to assess, you have to kind of postulate and pull them apart so you can know where the child is at. We took those six levels and then we added some questions under each level that pertains to the, the FEDC. But we also added standardized testing, like on level one, we added some real strong sensory pieces because regulation depends a lot on sensory. On level two, uh, on the engagement area, we added pieces that could tell us about joint attention and tests that could be related to that. On level three, we have language measurements that we could use in order to help us with the individual differences in that arena. Plus, we have praxis and motor planning pieces that would inhibit level three. On level four, the pretend play piece, we added theory of mind testing that can help us to understand if this child's, what's this child's cap capability of perspective taking, social perspective taking. What is, can they pair their verbal and their nonverbal gestures together? All those intricacies that comes with the socialized um, human uh, persona. And then on level uh, six with a symbolic, uh, five with a symbolic thinking, we added other emotional processing measurements. Um, we added something like the heart drawing of Dr. Art Becker Weidman, which can be done with kids with very minimal fine motor skill. Um, but just to help us to give us an idea what their concept is of some emotional pieces that might come up, symbolic pieces. Um, and besides that, we also have the video that we do with play with the parent that also tells us even more about any of these six levels. 
And on level six, we added some executive functioning tests so that you can literally through the whole levels, you can also get the individual differences that goes along with it. And then we end the evaluation with relationship pieces, um, looking also at things like the parent stress index and looking at how the parent profile is coping with what's happening. What do we need to do to support in that arena so we can get a holistic family view on what's happening at, um, at this moment in time? Um, so you would think that that would take us hours to do, but it's actually only two hours. Oh, my goodness. Um, so, so, <laughs> okay. this, um, so there's a lot of pieces that we get from questionnaires, which obviously adds to the picture. But the standardized test will actually, it flows, just giving you the one after the other. And after each level, we give a summary of that level and what's impeding that level. And the parent walks away with a total tool bag of this is the journey. This is what we need to do. This is where we got to go to start. And then this is what we can do about it, basically, because we also end with giving them a roadmap. So that's a synopsis of months of work. <laughs> wow, wow. It sounds fabulous. I just want to back it up a little bit for our listeners who might, might possibly be lost and there might be others that are totally with us. But just to back it up a little bit, um, Maud LaRue is an occupational therapist by trade. She started the, this clinic in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania called A Total Approach, where she sees children and has a staff that sees children in occupational therapy, speech and language uh, pathologists you have. You have um, DIR floor time play project, um, play therapy person. You do um, other types of interventions such as Tomatis listening therapy, interactive metronome, and I'm sure there are others too, a whole um, clinic that really offers a full service for, for children with developmental challenges. And um, you offer intensives and we have brought our son to Maud's clinic, I think it's been four times now. Um, if I'm not mistaken, and we'll be going for the fifth time this year, where he gets two weeks of um, intensive work um, each day, about four hours a day um, for two weeks. And, um, and what, what um, we're talking about is when, when Maud gets a new client and the parents say, I, I don't know what to do, um, there's all these assessments out there and there's various types of um, approaches and therapies and Maud has tied it all nicely into one package. Um, and we, we referred to the FEAS, the Functional Emotional Assessment Survey, which was part of Dr. Greenspan's model. And if I'm not mistaken, that's an observational survey where you'll watch um, either parents and uh, children playing or video of parents and children playing. And there's a certain coding system to code yeah different kinds of behaviors that you see on the parts of the child and if the parents That's responsive fine. or not. And so it sort of codes and um, evaluates what's happening in, in that relationship that you see. But you've now taken it a step further where you are looking at the child's whole profile, their individual differences, their sensory processing, um, the different capacities they have, um, based on the DIR model, six functional emotional developmental capacities, and within each, using different assessments that are already standardized assessments that are being used um, to help um, evaluate where the child is in, within each of those levels, because each level is so broad and there are so many pieces, and it's not like a... Uh, ICDL switched from using levels to capacities for that reason. It's not like you you finish uh, FEDC one and all of a sudden you're working on two and then three and then four. We're always moving up and down this developmental ladder. Um, so some children have immense problems with regulation. If they walk into a busy, crazy, hectic place, they're overwhelmed by sensory input and they're unable to function, engage with others, um, have these back and forth interactions. Whereas um, in other environments, they can, in, they can maintain a wonderful engagement and back and forth interactions for lengths of time. So in that case, they're constricted in certain ways and your assessment is able to really give a profile of each child within each level. What are their strengths? 
what are their challenges, um, where, where, what are the possibilities for us going forward, what is it that the family wants to work on, what is it that, um, that you see is the path going forward um, to help this child function and adapt in the world that's out there uh, without being under so much anxiety and stress each day. And certainly that's been my biggest concern as a parent. And I think it's the responsibility of parents to be able to um, help our children adapt to this world because this world isn't really adapting to them. And we have to do our <laughs> best to adapt what we can but certainly um, if a child is able to understand their regulation and be able to communicate uh, their needs and wants, then it makes life a lot less stressful for them. And right. it's such a broad spectrum and there are so many different profiles. We can never talk about one child uh, because every child is completely different, even though there might be overlapping um, tendencies or uh, behaviors that might look similar across children. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know what's so important from what you're saying, Daria, is that I think that uh, there's, there's so many things that was that, that brought us to this place of developing this. Number one, OTs do not diagnose. So we don't want to really create another diagnostic category. I love working on profiles because the profile tells me so much more than the diagnosis. It gives me the little nuances that makes that child that individual person that he is. Um, and it gives me that piece of saying, hey bud, I get your number. So maybe if you get my number, we can gel, you know, we can, we can do something together. And I just, I don't want to change you. I just wanna make life a little bit easier for you. So what, what happened with that whole piece is that because the new DSM includes sensory processing as one of the diagnostic criteria now for the diagnosis of autism, we've had many, many children come to us with a diagnosis of autism, but actually only really having sensory processing disorder. And that became a problem because let's say a child is misdiagnosed, which Let's face it, it can happen to anyone, anybody, anywhere, uh, depending on the way that people are assessing and what they're using for assessment. Um, the core deficit for me is the fact that the child doesn't maybe have theory of mind or central coherence, which are the two theories that's very prevalent in autism today. And central coherence being, can they generalize the skill? Can they learn something in this environment and generalize that skill somewhere else? So those two concepts was really important for me so that now when we do the evaluation, we can actually quite clearly see what child actually does have autism and who has sensory processing. And I have to say that with an inverted commas because I'm not allowed to diagnose, but I'm, I'm not going to. Mm -hmm. I'm going to basically postulate that maybe this is something that your doctor may be interested in or the person who's made the diagnosis and maybe this is something that could be helpful and if not it's not now um, can you just rewind a bit and talk a little bit about what is theory of mind because i'll tell you i heard that term for the last three years and i think i only am just starting to understand what it meant and and it shouldn't be that difficult uh, i must have heard different versions and never really grasped what it meant so my understanding is it's the ability for a child to understand that someone else has a different perspective than they do. That's right. So, so when I say, say to my son, when my son comes and stomps on my foot and goes, ow, and looks at me with a smile because he's excited to see my reaction, and I say, ow, that hurt, ow. Is he understand, does he understand that that really hurt me or he's just focused on, it's fun for me to see mama's reaction. I don't know if that's a wonky no, example. You're, you're actually, that's pretty, it's a pretty good example there, Daria. And um, so let me give you even more practical and, and take the emotion out of the equation, right? Let's just look at theory of mind. So let's say I have two adults in the room. And let's say I'm the examiner and I have a colleague with me and I have the child that's being um, undergoing some tasting. I have two cups. I put a car under one cup in front of the child and in front of my colleague. 
and I say to the child, under which cup is the car? And he points to, obviously, the appropriate cup. I then send the colleague out, and as the colleague leaves, I change from the one cup, the car, and put it on the other cup. And then I say to the child, so if she comes back, where is she going to look for the car? Right? And then he points to the second cup. Having no idea that she is out of the room and she's not going to have any inclination of what has just happened here. And that, that piece there tells you that there's a disconnect with how they're perceiving, others are perceiving. That the perception is always coming from within the self um, to the self and not really from the self to others and back to me. That, that correlation is not available. And that's a very complicated piece. And I gave you like what books can be writing hundreds of pages of, right? Just a very practical way of looking at it. Um, and, and looking at what is that child really perceiving from that moment. And as you're saying, that whole emotional piece, you know, he's smiling and you're thinking like he's vindictive because how can he smile in the face of your pain? But he doesn't know. He doesn't know how to coin that. Yeah, it's very innocent and playful and I'm just having fun. And it's a problem when it's at school because, um, for instance, last week he knocked over his, well, he does this often, but <laughs> knocked over his friend's snack at snack time. And the other little boy was crying and crying. He was so upset. And they had to sit with him and really work through like, oh, he's so sad. And, and he's finally starting to become aware that the other boy is sad, but it hasn't really gelled yet that you know, like he can't get past, I have this sensory need to knock things over and watch them fall and see a reaction. He hasn't quite made that leap to understand um, the effect on the other person. That's right. And, and there's so many pieces that comes to mind when you're thinking of theory of mind. And just, just think about one aspect. And I mean, we can talk about this for days, Daria. There's, there's so much to it. So just in the development of theory of mind, we're looking at the sense of self-developing. So I have to embody myself. I have to have a body awareness, and I gotta be able to understand that this body awareness has a different physical feel than the child next to me. And there's a separation between us, right? And that separation also means that that's a separate entity so when you just look at children who have difficulty understanding I and me and you and yours, right? And they would just repeat after you whether they're talking about I or me or mm -hmm. you because they can't really give you pronouns. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of goals in the IEP talking about these pronouns, um, but they cannot get it until they have a sense of I. I am a separate entity. Mm -hmm. And if that, that sense of self doesn't develop, then it's so hard, besides the language, to get to theory of mind. Because in order for me to get somebody else, I have to get myself. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and that's why those bottom levels are so very, very important. And we have seen so many beautiful, beautiful situations where, where kids have really gotten it. And, and then when they get it, we're all like, hallelujah, we got it, <laughs> you know? And, and when you're talking about your son and what he's experiencing right now, to me, it's like he's on the verge. He's on the verge. He's going to get there, right? So, um, but it, it's a core piece. And really, when we talk about assessment, when we talk about intervention, we're not talking about perfection. We're not talking about curing. We're not talking about anything that could be disrespectful to the child. What we're talking about is how can I make your life easier? How can I facilitate things that you can become the best that you can be? Um, and I feel like if we keep pulling the child into different directions, here they do ABA, then they do speech, then they do OT, there they do teaching, and we keep splitting up the child into the different scopes of practices. How on earth must he get to that place where he can put it all together? So when, when you think about that, and when you think about that you have to intervene to bring that integration to bear, then it becomes a problem is how do I assess it? 
how, and what tools am I going to use to really get to the essence? Because if I want to use a developmental model, certainly I must know where the development got stuck. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so that chasing the why becomes the, 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 the big important piece and what makes it so important for us to put this together. And it's amazing. It's amazing to see how much easier it is for a parent to understand um, that piece. So let's talk a little bit about that because you've been using this assessment now, first of all, in development, but now that it's out, I assume you've been using it on clients. And what has the experience been? The parents are walking away with, okay, now I get it. They're walking away with, it's not just a diagnosis anymore. It is, it is, it's how the child is formed. I want to say separate from the diagnosis because I don't want to overfocus on the diagnosis, but how the child's profile is enacted um, through and from this, having this diagnosis and maybe not even having this diagnosis at all on some cases, right? Um, and then we, we give them um, a place of start that makes sense to them. And we say that if typical development was good enough for the neurotypically developing child, it's going to have to be good enough for your child. Um, and that's where we are. Now, what, what I'm really, um, what I really uh, stress, and I don't really always say this in front of the parents because I want to be very respectful to other people and what they are doing and the programs that they're using. But I really am so, so very concerned if a child does not have autism and they're going into a 20 or 30 hour week program of ABA. Because so many doctors now are saying that ABA is what your child needs as soon as they get the diagnosis. And if there's a misdiagnosis, and the child actually has a sensory processing issue, if they're going into something like ABA, they are actually gonna train the issue because sensory integration is very far removed from uh, what an ABA type of a program does. Mm -hmm. So I have a huge concern with that. And and part of this developmental type of uh, assessment is to see how much we can combat that, how much we can prevent that from happening so that the child can be assessed for what they really truly need and not be assessed and intervened simply because the diagnosis calls for a certain intervention. There are so many different things we can do today. Mm-hmm. So many different pieces that we have to put to the puzzle. And we simply have to stop pulling the kid apart from one to the other. And, and we have to start thinking about how we integrate it together. And for me, it starts at the assessment level. Absolutely. And I think of the example I heard on an ancient, ancient video from some listening therapy promotional video I saw where there was a woman in the United States who went to France to get this listening therapy and um, it really helped her. And she said as a child, She'd be in the back seat on a car trip, like covering her ears. It was so painful listening to the woman in the back seat talking to her parents. And when it rained, it felt like machine guns shooting and she couldn't stand it. It was like sheer pain and agony. So imagine that child cannot function when there's certain noises and you're sitting her down and trying to do ABA with her. Like it's completely irrelevant to what she's going through. So to be able to pinpoint you know, how can I help my child not be in pain all the time? (laughs) And really, this is, it's so not about changing the child. I know there's a strong push with the neurodiversity movement. uh, Don't change us, don't change us. DIR floor time is the most respectful therapy out there that is really empowering our children through our relationships. We're not going to do something with them that is going to make them scream and be uncomfortable. It's just not what good floor time is. No, it's not. And, and the thing is that, you know, I always feel like if, if I like having my coffee in the morning, right? And you come to me and you say, you know what, Maud, that coffee you're drinking is just not publicly appropriate for me. It's not appropriate for you. But for me, it's like my get up, 
ready and go, let's rock and roll kind of a thing, you know? So now I, I have to think, okay, so why does it matter to you what I'm drinking? Mm-hmm. <laughs> why is it not publicly appropriate? And actual fact, now that I think about it, how dare you take away something that has meaning for me? Yeah. So we do the same thing with children. If we say, don't flap your hands anymore, quiet hands, quiet hands, quiet hands, how on earth must that child without theory of mind understand why it's not appropriate to do that in the circumstance that he's in? If he doesn't have an embodied sense of self, that he hasn't really gotten to a place where he can understand that the person asking him not to flap his hands has got a very good reason, perhaps, how on earth must this make them feel? So this is why we see that as soon as you get one behavior down, it just comes up in a different way because you're not dealing with the need. Yeah. You're not dealing yeah. with the origin of where this is coming from. You know, for me, I want that kid to also look like he's enjoying himself without needing to hand flap or do something that makes him look different. Um, and I'm not saying that because of something for me. I don't care. Come and hand flap with me anytime you like. And I, in fact, I probably will hand flap with you because I want to meet you where you're at, right? Oh, our son oh, is yeah. a big hand flapper. When he's excited looking at the model <laughs> trains and the shows, he's flapping away and everybody's staring at us. And I'm saying, oh, you're so excited. This is so exciting. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, and, you know, and, and people may look at us differently because there's so much push for status quo, right? But we all acknowledge individual differences. That's the big buzzword of the day is let's accept each other exact as we are. And the fact that I want to to help the child with autism to achieve a higher level of functioning has very little to do with me. It has to do with, I know that life is going to look very hard for this child if they don't have some medium of communicating, if they don't have some way of telling their wants and their needs. <coughs> I'm sorry, if they don't have some way of achieving something in vocation and having a purposeful life that could you know, could contribute to society. Um, I, I think that there's, um, there's always limits to everything. and Every profile is going to show a limit at some time, just like I have limits in myself. Please don't ask me to become an accountant because I will certainly fail <laughs> within the first semester, okay? It's, just, it's not going to happen. I'm very, very weak in that area. But I do understand the human brain. So that's my affinity. That's where I go. And for it's to make that child's affinity happen in such a way that they can use it for vocation, for leisure, and that they could become happy inside of themselves instead of always needing to prove themselves in a different way. So it's about celebrating the differences. That's really what this evaluation is about, is celebrating those differences. And to add to what you just said, or to be overcome with crippling anxiety every day of your life. That's right. That's um, right. Trying to ease that anxiety as best as we can and, and doing that through um, different kinds of uh, playful therapy that really helps um, helps the central nervous system calm down to a state where they can master different struggles that they've had earlier in development. And, you know, to be to be fair, I mean, all parents go through this with all children, you know, um, let's just use the example of toddlers, they're not going to be able to understand that you have to share with another child. Yet I still see parents every single time I'm at any play store or whatever saying, you have to share. If you don't know, give that back to them or we're going home right now. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> it's just not possible. The child is not at the stage of development where they can understand sharing. And it's the same type of approach where we're always assuming competence and we're always looking at the strengths in our children and helping them with those strengths, which is like what you said, you don't wanna be an accountant. And you know, I don't, um, well, there's lots of things I don't wanna do, but, <laughs> but you want to go with your strengths and, and really helping our children find a way where they can get to the point where they can communicate with us 
if you know i i think my intuition with my son and my relationship with my son is so good i i like understand every thought and feeling that he's going through when he's experiencing different sensory things i can i can see he's struggling for this reason for that reason and it may or may not be accurate but i think i know my son better than anybody and i don't want anyone else telling me that um what you're doing with your son is not respecting what he's experiencing because I think I know him better than anybody else. <laughs> and certainly um, I can tell by the joy in his face when he's able to finally master something. And and they told me something that he did last week in school and I'm trying to remember what it was, but he was so proud. They said for the first time he was really able to understand something that happened with a peer and this look of pride on his face. And I mean, that's what we're aiming for. When, when he feels confident and competent in handling situations that were previously so overbearing and, and filled with anxiety, and he still has so many moments of anxiety throughout the day, he still doesn't understand, you and I have talked about this before, that concept of time and understanding, um, even though in, th you, you know, you sort of, talk about things that we're going to do next week and and what day of the week it is and he knows the days of the week now and everything he still just doesn't understand exactly what it means when you tell him something's going to happen later he gets so distressed about it because he's he's not grasping some of these concepts and how much easier it'll be for him when he is able to understand things like that and not be so panicked i you know what daria i think that i don't think we can totally ever really appreciate the stress and anxiety that our kids are going through. Um, I don't think we can appreciate what it means when I look at something and I have an idea, but I have no idea how to pull it off. I have no idea how to, how to really go there. So all I can think of is something repetitive to do. Or screen. That's right. <laughs> our That's son right. gets very frustrated. Oh, help, Dada, help. That's and right. even that's an improvement that he's able to say help is a big improvement yeah. from where he would have been a few years ago. That's right. That's right. And and before, you know, if he doesn't communicate, you have to guess. Mm -hmm. and, and you're right. Parents know their kids far better than we as professionals can ever know. And I have a big respect for that gut mommy instinct, you know. Um, and I think that they should actually be validated for that a lot more than sometimes getting some pet answers for some things. Um, because they really, this is so complicated that we just simply can't even afford a pet answer on anything. If, if I have just this fact that you and I can talk right now, that I understand I'm looking at a screen, but my mind can go three-dimensionally into where you're sitting there in front of your map, right? Mm -hmm. And then my mind can go that you're right now in Canada, that you are thousands of miles apart from me and from where I am situated. I can have that full concept, that full 3D visualization and conceptualization. I don't think we're thousands of miles apart. Only a few, <laughs> a, a few hundred. <laughs> you drive it, so you know. <laughs> so the, um, uh, but you, you get what I'm saying. So for the kid with autism right now, if they had this conversation, for them, this is, this is it. You're on a screen somewhere. And you know, it's almost like, um, you know, are you behind the screen? <laughs> you know, what's going on behind the screen? And, and not really understanding that full conceptualization, which enriches life um, and makes life just more comprehensive and more full um, and enables the understanding of things that's happening so far better. Um, and that's the part that you cannot even measure. You cannot, there's no standardized testing for that. There's no standardized testing for that little affective nuance that makes a difference. If I say to a child today, hey, honey, could you just wait five minutes for me? Right? It's a difference saying that what part of five minutes don't you get? Yeah. Right? <laughs> so I have two different messages and the child must make something of it. And because I'm changing the nuance, the emphasis goes on the nuance and gone is the words. You know, because I, I can't put them all together. It's just too complicated. And so and, this, this and, is what we want to get at is what is what is it going to take to give you the best possible scenario of, of enriching your life? So just to go back to the example of that 
video I saw on YouTube about the woman who's, you know, had machine guns. She said, because as an adult, this listening therapy had helped her, and, and now she's reflecting as an adult and said, I just assumed everybody felt the same way as me, and they weren't covering their ears and freaking out, so I thought there must be something wrong with me. And that just goes to show um, that's what all children go through. You know, when, um, you know, people can say, when I was a little child and people, uh, actually, this, this happened to me. When I was a little girl in grade one, I was cute because I had long, curly, blonde hair and I was very tiny. And I walked up to the grade eight room because the teacher gave me a paper to hand to the teacher. And, and she trusted me, so I went, knocked on the door. And as I walked in, I remember this very vividly, every eighth grader in the class staring at me and smiling. And I thought they were laughing at me and I wondered like, why are they laughing at me? But of course now I realize like they're going, oh, look at that cute little girl, right? But yeah. you don't know that when you're a child. And that had nothing to do with me being autistic or not autistic. It's just a typical phase of development. It's a part of being human. And that is something that all the kids are feeling. So especially in children who have challenges that give them so much anxiety um, when something like that happens, like you said, we cannot possibly appreciate what they're experiencing. That's right. And you know what, dear our floor time, I do many different programs. You know that you've been here and I have been to many parts of the globe searching. And, and, and the way that, that my mind basically works is that I do something with a kid and then I get a kid where it doesn't work. And then I want to figure out why didn't it work? come on, I want it to work. And then I, t and I go and I go and I go and I go on the internet, I go and visit places and I look for, what is it that I'm missing here? Where is this piece? Where, what, what am I not getting? And I tell you in all of those search, and I'm definitely a seeker, I definitely search and I keep searching. Um, in all of that, I haven't found any other program than Dear Our Floor Time that truly truly encapsulates what it is to work with theory of mind. And if you look at the research of any other training, and I'm talking pivotal response training, I'm talking ABA, I'm talking many of those different places, RDI. I mean, we've, I've been to so many of these different trainings, at least the basic trainings. If it doesn't fit me, I stop. So they do not harness theory of mind. And theory of mind is the core difference between what would give you a sensory processing difficulty and what would give you an autism diagnosis. That piece of not getting that piece, that, that of understanding others, and therefore your whole system wants to go into your own world and hide and live here in your videos, in your reels of information and live here instead of living out there. And then because your motivation is to self-protect go into your own mind, you don't put yourself into experiences where you can learn things like motor planning or play experiences or working with a peer to figure out what does it mean to really negotiate? What does it mean to share? What does it mean to take to consider somebody else's feelings? So it just becomes a combination of that beginning anxiety because I'm not in that shape. And then it's that whole poverty of experiences that develop because I'm not going to put myself in a position where I'm not going to feel protected and I'm not going to feel safe. Right. And, and so, so that complication of, of, of I must say, the, the, um, the coming together of all those complicated factors is, um, I think, what's at essence in every single individual child. There is no cookie-cutter recipe here. Everybody that has a child with autism knows your child is unique. And how many parents with autism or ch who has children on the spectrum, I should say parents with autism, but on the spectrum has said to you, I can't find the right school program for my child. It's like he's always a square peg in a round hole. Mm -hmm. um, because why? Because they're so individual. And what do schools do? Schools are wonderfully embracing these days. They invite children that's on the autism spectrum to be a part of the school system. There is a special education curriculum. There is IEP goals. There are systems in place. 
And then what they do is they develop programs and then this individual profile must fit in that program. Instead and of the other way around. <laughs> that's right. And what makes it an individualized education plan is that we must fit around the child's profile. But the schools know that they cannot simply, they don't know how to basically fit every single individual profile. So they're trying to find a generic component amongst the whole gamut of autism profiles. And it's just, and if they don't know exactly what they're looking like in individual differences and how this apply, applies to emotional development, to social development, they're going to keep seeing the child as, as long as you follow the status quo, you're going to be okay. But the status quo makes no sense to our child. Mm -hmm. And there's the disconnect. Now, um, are, maybe you're, maybe you are, maybe you're not. Are you saying that, um, if a child has struggles with theory of mind, that is what you see as um, the most likely thing that defines them as being diagnosed on the spectrum and that kids with just sensory processing disorder do have theory of mind? Yeah, I haven't seen a kid with sensory processing disorder that doesn't have it. Now, ch now parents might say, oh, my child is so selfish, it's all about them, right? But then once you start digging, you see, no, it's not really, but this is what they have to do to self-protect, you know. And then you can also see those kids go faster through the programming that we have at our center. But okay. kids who have theory of mind issues, they linger much longer. If you think about the FEDC levels, they linger so much longer to make the bridge between levels three, um, the capacity three and capacity four. Mm -hmm. um, and that does not happen with SPD. Okay, interesting, interesting. Yeah. Yep, and then certainly a lot of children that have the theory of mind issues also might have SPD, sensory processing right. disorder. Absolutely, and that's where we have the difference. We have yeah. to we have to be able to analyze which is which Yeah. because it's going to make a big difference in how we intervene. My programs are developmentally based, but I have a very different sequence of, of programming if I have a child that's truly on the spectrum, then I have a child who's SPD, then I have a child who has a reading disorder, then I have a child who has Down syndrome. Um, there, there is no real one size fits all. Mm -hmm. and, and so this is why for me, it's so important that we have an assessment that can drive those decision making because it can save the parent, not only a lot of time, but also a lot of finances. Um, in order to direct your attention and your energy in the space where you can go. And you know what, Daria? Hey, I know we're talking a long time. We probably should stop at some point here. But the, um, uh, what is really sad for me is that we have become a society that wants to see a quicker fix, mm -hmm. that wants to see the product that wants to be um, validated for what we can create, what we can make, how we expose ourselves to the world. That's, that's the reward. We get rewarded for what we produce. But we forget that in order to produce, we have to have the process. And my belief is, if we give the child process, the product will always be there. We have to find ways of validating the process. Because in that, if that, in that validation of the process lies that intrinsic motivation to want to try again. Mm -hmm. But if the only way I get validated is if I deliver a product, there's a disconnect between my understanding, where I'm going with it, how I even achieve it, and I'm doing something simply to please somebody else, right. which is not the way you and I operate. You right now is sitting behind that desk in front of that camera because you have a passion and a motivation, an intrinsic drive to want to tell the world, listen, there's a way we can harness your child. You are driven. Your reward lies within yourself in, in, your, in creating that passion and answering to that passion. Mine too. I... I learn every single month of my life I'm on a course. If I'm not giving one, I'm taking one. And why am I doing that? I'm older. I should be thinking of retirement. Why am I doing that? 
my reward lies in every single smile that I get from every child. That's, that's what I want to see. And I don't want to see that smile just because he's produced. I want to see that child because he's come into a place of being. Mm-hmm. That's my motivation. That's why I do what I do. That's why I spend hours working when my husband gets mad at me. <laughs> so that is really what we have. That's what I want that child to have. I don't want him to be driven because he can get an iPad at the end of the month or driven because he can get an extra program that he can watch over the weekend. That is so empty. I want that child to be driven that he wants to get up this morning because he's got something productive that he's going to do with his day that's going to make him feel good by the time he goes to bed tonight. Even if, that, even, if that some, even if that something is going and playing with my building blocks. That's right. That's right. And wanting to do it, understanding why, understanding the meaning, understanding what he can get from it, you know, and, and really getting that full piece of enjoyment of it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's where they need to be. Um, so anyway, I've said so much today. <laughs> um, I don't think that you wanted me to go this far and ahead. And no, no, stuff. that no, that's great. That's great. Um, if people want to know more about this assessment, I will put a link to your clinic in the full blog post that accompanies this podcast and or video cast. Uh, I'll have to figure out what this is going to look like. <laughs> it's the first time I'm, I'm using a Zoom meeting here for affect autism. But um, thank you so much for, for telling us about this assessment. And it'll be great to do a follow-up um, later this year, in a few months, whatever, and find out how it's going and maybe even talk to some families who have had the assessment and see what they got from it and, um, and how they felt that it helped their family and their child. Wonderful. Thank you for this opportunity, Daria. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Maud. And um, please do check out the full podcast at affectautism.com. And until next week, here's to affecting autism.